in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we're looking at a mystery that's emerged from a red supergiant star. We're also looking at the bloom of algae and how clinicians are stopping genetic diseases from being passed on. This is the Nature Podcast for August the 17th, 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Nearly everything living in the oceans today, from the tiniest shrimp to the mightiest whale, is there thanks to algae. Algae are tiny organisms that carry out photosynthesis and form the base of the food web in the ocean. Although they're microscopic, algae are eukaryotes, more complex and much larger than bacteria. And their rise to dominance in the oceans may have set the scene for even more complex life to emerge. In a Nature paper this week, scientists have determined a new timeline for this transition. Anand Jagatia spoke to paleobiogeochemist Jochen Brox from the Australian National University and started by asking him what the oceans were like before algae conquered them. For most of Earth's history, the organisms that were converting sunlight to energy and carbon dioxide to carbon were microscopic bacteria called cyanobacteria, the green-coloured bacteria Conversely, algae are much more complex organisms that have a cell volume up to a thousand times larger. And they are composite of a so-called protist, a eukaryotic, a complex organism that swallowed a cyanobacterium about maybe 1.6, 1.7 billion years ago and became light-using phototrophic organisms itself. Why, is that, why was that shift such a profound shift? What did it change? What were the impacts of that? You know, when it comes to ocean ecology, size really matters. And bacteria are just very, very small. And you cannot create a complex ecosystem based on very small creatures at the bottom of the food chain because the transfer of energy and carbon to higher levels is very inefficient. And so the transition from a world of bacteria to a world of much larger algae was probably one of the most profound transitions in Earth history. But the thing is, no one really knew when that happened. So based on molecular clocks, there's a plus minus one billion years, we don't know. Fossils are extremely rare and they just do not tell us when this transition happened. And that's what you were trying to work out in this paper. So you you were using molecular fossils. Can you explain what they are and, and how they work? The cell membrane contains molecules that are called sterols. And when an organism dies, these fat molecules will be transferred to the bottom of the sea and turn into hydrocarbon fossil. And in this way, we can determine the relative concentration of molecules derived from algae and bacteria. And this gives us a measure of the importance of these groups of organisms. And what we did is we took sedimentary rocks from the time from around 1 billion years to the present and determined when algae became important based on those molecules. So what did you find out then when you reconstructed this timeline of of the rise of algae using these molecular fossils? The timeline was extremely exciting. Uh, About 50 million years before algal molecules become really abundant, there was the greatest climatic catastrophe in Earth history, so-called snowball Earth event, which started 717 million years ago. At this point, Earth froze over entirely, probably all the way to the equator, 
and even the oceans were frozen two kilometers deep. And uh, the Earth, in the snowball Earth, remained in this freezing state for 50 million years. And after it melted, we get a beautiful signal of biomarkers and rocks sitting directly above these melt rocks, uh, and there's only bacteria. And then a few million years later, the algae kick in. The concentration of algal molecules goes up by a factor of 1000, and from a very simple assemblage of molecules, we get the full complicated diversity of those algal molecules that we still have today. So it's really a black and white signal. It is a signal from a completely bacterial world to a eukaryotic world. Do you think then that Snowball Earth was somehow responsible for this, this causing this shift or triggering this shift? Yeah, it's very tempting to make that connection, of course. And this is all we can do in geology to correlate events that happen more or less at the same time. But there's a, there's a very beautiful hypothesis how the snowball is actually related to the rise of algae. In ecology, in ocean ecology, size really matters. For example, if phosphate is very low, cyanobacteria will win against the much larger algae. And that's pure physics because small creatures have a very large surface to volume ratio and by pure diffusion are more capable of taking up trace nutrients. And the snowball, the melting snowball, might simply have provided a huge burst of nutrients into the ocean that tipped the scale towards the more complex creatures. What would be some of the alternative hypotheses for, from this data? There will be ecologists, marine ecologists, that say, wow, if phosphate levels go up, I would expect actually cyanobacteria to win the race. I believe it would be nitrogen levels or other nutrients that are more important. Um, the second thing that might be controversial is the consequences. My idea is we get large creatures at the base of the food web that were feeding the energy that provided the food for larger and larger organisms to appear. You get an escalatory arms race, escalatory evolution towards larger and larger size. So if this is correct, then we really have algae to thank for you know, the whole ecosystems and animals that we have today. There is a very easy to understand analogy. If there was no plants growing on land, there would be also no animals. The same in the ocean. If we didn't have the algae, we would not have any animals in the ocean. I wish I could show you a picture of in scale of a cyanobacterium next to an alga. Uh, it is really a mouse and an elephant. If you see this picture, you can really appreciate what this change at the base of the food world actually did. You know, a cyanobacterium is nothing you can feed on. It is tiny. It doesn't provide too much energy. So algae at the base of the food web, next trophic level, creatures like foraminifera or radiolarians, they are already enormous in comparison. They are gigantic. They are the T-Rexes of the Precambrian Ocean. That was Jochen Brooks speaking with Anand Jagatia. Jochen's paper is available now at nature.com forward slash nature. Nature reporter David Serenowski has written a feature this week looking at an approach to stop genetic diseases from being passed on. And this topic is incredibly close to home for David. We, we have a, a genetic defect in my family which I've... I've seen the effects of um, firsthand over, over generations, and it's, uh, it's a polycystic kidney disease, which can kicks in when you're 40 or 50 and destroys the kidneys. So I've seen uh, the kind of damage that it can do. Uh, the money and the suffering that goes into all of this is, is amazing. There's a lot of talk about the promise of gene editing in treating conditions like this. You may remember that just two weeks ago we discussed a study that used CRISPR to gene-edit human embryos and rid them of a genetic mutation. These techniques still have to overcome many ethical and technical hurdles before they could help families like David's. 
but there's an approach that's already available now. Pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and screening. The idea is simply to use IVF and check embryos for the genetic disease before implanting one in the womb. It completely sidesteps many of the issues of gene editing. And David is already thinking about the impact it could have on his family. It would only be, you know, 10 people or something like that, and they could have this disease out of the family forever. Pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, PGD, is already being used around the world, including in the UK and the US. David reports from China, and his feature looks at the rapid uptake of PGD that has taken place across this huge country. It's, it's really growing quickly. Uh, there were only four clinics in, in China that were approved, licensed to do it in 2004. And, then, and now there are about 40 clinics that can do it. And these clinics are huge. In part, this rapid boom has been made possible by researchers like Sunny Xie. He's a chemist at Harvard and has worked on a technique for reliable genome sequencing that is now used for some PGD in China. He told me about the first disease that his technique was used to screen. It is a disease that gave rise to bone tumor. So starting from age two, this person in this case would have tumors removed every uh, two years. If the parents were to conceive a child the conventional way, there would be a 50-50 chance that this debilitating disease would be passed on from the father to the child. But Sonny and his collaborators were able to make sure that the embryo that was implanted didn't have the mutation. And a few months later, on the 19th of September 2014... There's a baby girl... She was perfect, and when we went to see her, she was uh, smiling at us. She didn't even cry, so she's a perfect baby. (laughs) For Sunny, this baby girl brings home just why PGD is so important in combating these inherited conditions. His genome sequencing technique has helped more than 200 families in China, and Sunny is hopeful that PGD could one day achieve even more. If we continue to do this, it will eliminate those major diseases after several decades. And I think people want to do that, and it's necessary to do that, and it's not controversial. Screening embryos may be less controversial than gene editing, but there are still ethical concerns. In the West, there's deep anxiety that approaches like this could one day lead to eugenics where society permits designer babies which are chosen for their desirable traits, not just their absence of disease. But David explains that there are big differences in how this is spoken about in China. In China, the word eugenics, the word they use to to translate um, the the 19th century concept of improving the gene pool, actually means healthy birth. So it's, it's a completely untainted word. David thinks this has a big influence on reducing the stigma surrounding the approach. But Sonny doesn't think this is what has driven the growth in PGD. Last year, China ended its policy of one child per family. This created a huge group of older women who were suddenly allowed to have a second child, but needed fertility treatment to fall pregnant. This gave them the option to screen embryos before implantation. It's not like uh, people are insensitive about the ethical issues. It's just like there are more people who want babies 
free of these genetic disorders. And so I, I think that's a real, uh, it's a real need. David agrees that China isn't adopting these techniques thoughtlessly. In some ways, it seems China is actually more restrictive than certain Western countries. I think people are, are going into this very carefully, which might uh, not be the image that you have from outside of China. One interesting example is, is sex selection in China. That's something that in the U.S. is completely fine, fine to do. And if you go on chat rooms in the U.S., you can hear a lot of people just very nonchalantly talking about, yeah, I have one son, so next time I want to have a girl and, and I'm going to use embryo selection for it. But that's something in, in China that would be um, ethically that they think it's wrong and, and, and it's also illegal. As PGD continues to grow, what's legal and what's socially acceptable may change. But Sonny already feels that PGD is an invaluable weapon in the battle against genetic diseases. I, I felt like this uh, uh, most useful thing I've ever done. I, I never imagined that the technique that we developed uh, for fundamental research uh, was able to uh, help people so quickly. That was Sunny Xie and reporter David Sirinowski. To find out more about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis in China, head over to nature.com forward slash news, where you'll find David's feature. Still to come, Californian climate research and a battle over bones. That's in the news chat, but now we're joined by Charlotte Stoddart, reading this week's research highlights. We're doomed. The mutant ants are coming. OK, we're not doomed, but two teams have independently created the first gene-edited ants. Terrifying. Both groups used CRISPR technology to edit the gene behind the industrious insect's sense of smell. Both sets of mutants lost their ability to smell, as may have been anticipated. This meant they could no longer use pheromones to communicate. How antisocial. No, seriously, both studies did find the new colonies to be somewhat less social. Take a nosy at those two papers over at Cell. Some people chew gum to stave off smelly breath, and some people chew to stop themselves from chomping on chocolate. But how about chewing gum to detect dental disease? That's right, clinical candy. Scientists have made a biosensor to detect peri-implant disease, that is, an inflammation of the gums caused by dental implants. Saliva from patients causes the gum to release a strong bitter taste. Yuck! This not-so-tasty tool could one day be used anywhere, anytime, reducing the cost and complexity of diagnosis. Sweet! Get your teeth stuck into the full story at Nature Communications. Across America, people are preparing for Monday's total solar eclipse. Not wanting to miss out on the eclipse mania, this week we're publishing an animated film on what scientists have learnt by studying eclipses throughout history. I think it's fair to say that the biggest star in science this week is the sun, but it's not the only one making headlines. Scientists from Chile and Germany have been taking a close-up look at a much more distant star, Antares, the brightest star in the constellation of Scorpius. Antares is 800 times larger than our sun. It's what's known as a red supergiant, a group which includes the biggest stars in the universe by volume. And it formed when a heavy star burnt through its fuel and collapsed, 
causing an enormous surge of heat that inflated its volume and gave it a cooler, redder outer layer. Red supergiants are constantly losing mass, seeding their environments with elements for the next generation of stars and planets. What drives this mass loss is a puzzle, and one that feeds into a bigger mystery about when a star will end its life in a giant supernova explosion. Understanding what's going on at its surface could provide some clues. Now, for the first time, astronomers have mapped out the movements of the hot gas on Antares's surface. But the results aren't quite what they expected. To find out how they managed to study the surface of this distant red supergiant, reporter Lizzie Gibney spoke to astronomer Keiichi Onaka. Although red supergiants are the biggest stars in the universe, even with the uh, biggest uh, telescope in the world at the moment, they look like just a mere bright light source or light point. And so you wanted to get an actual picture of this star's surface. So how did you go about doing that? We are combining multiple telescopes. In this, in our case, uh, three telescopes to form, uh, say, a virtual patch-up uh, gigantic telescope as large as 82 meters. And with this uh, gigantic telescope, we can achieve a very high sharpness. We can take a very sharp photo of the surface of stars. And it's not exactly a photo that you're taking, is it? What is it that you are able to determine about the surface from your, your map? What's new in our work is, that in, in addition to just take a photo of the surface of stars, we managed to measure the uh, motion over the surface of stars. So, in other words, the, the velocity of the gas at each position over the surface of uh, the red supergiant. And what did this motion or velocity map show us then about the surface of Antares? It looks very chaotic or turbulent. This means that we can recognize a number of uh, very large blobs or bubbles or cells and as large as the radius of the star itself. And these bubbles are moving in a very turbulent manner with the up to 20 kilometers per second. So some bubbles are uh, upwelling and some bubbles are downdrafting. And is there a good explanation for, for this kind of frantic bubbling that we see? At the moment, no, because the, uh, these, the bubbling motions uh, are reminiscent of convection. That's uh, what we see, for example, in the boiling water. But we compare the observations to the uh, latest uh, convection simulation for red supergiants, and we found out the current theoretical simulation cannot explain the motions and the bubbles and the atmosphere, the size of the atmosphere that we observed. So what we can say at the moment is convection alone cannot explain the uh, turbulence. Okay, so it's a, a bit of a mystery. Are, are there any any good ideas about what, what might be causing this turbulence then? Uh, so one idea is, for example, it might be related to magnetic fields, for example, that, uh, as we see on the surface of the sun. And the magnetic fields are actually detected in the red supergiants, but there is no uh, theoretical simulation or reliable theoretical simulation that can be compared with observation. So at the moment, might be, but uh, we can't say magnetic fields. And another idea is, for example, radiation uh, hitting uh, molecules in the atmosphere might cause 
such uh, turbulent motions. But again, the, this is still just an idea, and uh, the, somebody has to make a model, theoretical model, based on this idea. And are there any observations you can do to help clear up this mystery and figure out what's causing the turbulence? Yes, so the one idea is to do some uh, three-dimensional diagnostics uh, throughout the atmosphere. So what we did this time is to have uh, the uh, map of the motions of the material in the uh, upper atmosphere of Antares. But we can do the same thing at the different heights within the atmosphere. So, for example, closer to the surface and uh, farther away from the surface of the star. In this way, we can have a three-dimensional idea how the material is moving within the atmosphere from the layers very close to the star, to the surface of the star, and to the uh, great distances from the star. Then we might have a better idea what is really causing these uh, turbulent motions. That was Keiichi Onaka of the Universidad Católica del Norte in Chile, talking to Lizzie Gibney about the mystery of Antares's bubbling surface. You can find the paper and a news and views at nature.com forward slash nature. Time now, as always, for the news chat, and Dan Cressy has joined us in the studio. Hi, Dan. Hello. So it's no secret that it has become a little bit harder to be a climate scientist in America in recent months, but California is looking to actually do something about this. Yeah, once again, California is going out on its own in certain ways. And this time around, they're looking or at least considering setting up a California Climate Science and Solutions Institute, which would be a kind of new mega research funding institute to uh, give lots of money to climate scientists. It sounds like a noble idea. Is it on the verge of being built? How, How close actually are we? It's very much in the early stages of development. I mean, this idea is being floated around. It's got some pretty impressive backers, notably a whole bunch of universities based in California whose names will be very familiar to any of our listeners. But yeah, at the moment, it's not entirely clear that this is going to happen. So early days, but is there talk of where the, the money to actually fund this would come from? Yes. I mean, people who are supporting this are talking about millions of dollars per year kind of flowing through this new institute. And there are suggestions that this could come from California's cap and trade system, which is, of course, another example of the state just deciding it's going to get on and do things about climate change off its own back without waiting for the rest of the US and in some cases the rest of the world to catch up. Are there particular types of research that they'd want to be funding? Would it be solutions or understanding the climate system? Yeah, as the name um, Science and Solutions Institute implies, they're kind of trying to cover the spectrum here. So although, again, we're at very, very early days, the suggestion is that this would be both basic and applied research projects. Is it just California that's taking these steps to protect climate science or are there other parts of the US which are also making moves like this? It's not just California. On the other side of the country in New York, there is a similar, albeit it seems slightly smaller initiative at doing this, which is at Columbia University, the science dean, is also looking to build an alliance of universities and people to come together and support research. And they already have what you could consider a kind of trial project underway with a Center for Climate and Life Science at Columbia, which currently has raised a much smaller sum than they're talking about in California, about $8 million. 
But um, yeah, that's already going on out there. You mentioned at the beginning that uh, this isn't the first time California has gone it on its own relative to the rest of the country. What other examples are there of California going rogue? Well, there's the cap and trade system that I already mentioned. I think the other uh, really good example uh, in comparison to what they're doing here would be its Stem Cell Research Institute, which was kind of brought in at a time when the rest of the country was looking a little bit leery about stem cell research. California just said, no, we're going to do this. And they set up an, an institute that distributed millions of dollars to stem cell researchers. Let's move on now to our second story. Uh, And it won't come as a surprise to many of our listeners that there's lots of work going on to sequence DNA from ancient humans and ancient animal bones. But it's actually become very competitive to do this. Yes, and we say in our story that this has become a game of bones. And obviously, you can't do this science if you don't have the bones. You can't get DNA out of them and analyze that DNA and make all of these amazing findings which have been reported in nature and elsewhere about who these people were and, and where they might have come from and where they might have gone to and the kind of cultures they carried around. Like The first thing you need to do this work is a bone. And that means that if you've got that bone... You might want to keep it to yourself and get to do the cool science yourself. So some institutions actually seem to be hoarding bones. That's certainly what's being suggested by three archaeologists who've written a letter to Nature this week. And they say there needs to be kind of better coordination and fairer access to these samples to ensure, firstly, that everyone gets a shot. And secondly, that there is enough left to go around and people can do the kind of replication studies and ensure that we have samples for future advances in technology, which might allow us to do more. When we say uh, we need to make sure there are bones left for future advances, is that because the bones are damaged in some way when they're tested? Yeah, this is destructive testing. I mean, a lot of science you can do it on by just looking at a bone, maybe scanning it. But in this case, you need to basically crunch it, take a piece of it and do your analysis on that. So if everyone in the whole world got to do all of the analysis they wanted on all of these ancient bones, there would be no ancient bones left. Are there any institutions which are being good examples to the rest of the community and are actually sharing their bones? It's important to say that a lot of researchers already do share their samples around and are very generous sending things to other research groups. And one of the places that we cite in this story is a centre in Israel that's a kind of clearinghouse for animal bones in ancient DNA studies. And if you dig up a bone in Israel, you can send it to this central facility and they will deal with a lot of these questions. Is this something that is actually likely to change at all in the future? Because it seems like all the incentives are to keep hoarding bones because, as you say, if you have the bones, you have the power. So this happens in a lot of scientific fields. But the issue here is that ancient DNA is a really, really hot subject at the moment and people want to sort this problem out so they can get on with doing the science and getting all those papers which are going to end up probably in the pages of Nature and wherever. Dan, thanks a lot for joining us for more on those ancient bones and for this uh, California initiative on climate. Head to nature.com forward slash news. That's all we've got time for this week. But if you're excited about the upcoming eclipse in America, then make sure to check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. We're looking at the lessons we've learned from eclipses over the years. See you next week. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Shamini Bundell.